1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In, the podcast that takes you inside your favorite game. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and as always, delighted to be talking to you from the Santa Monica studios where we have a great, great show this week. Andrea Pekovic, fresh off of her TC debut, sits down to discuss a lot of things. She is truly one of a kind. We discuss her career from start to finish what it was like growing up in Germany and becoming one of the premier players in her nation. Her interests off the court. She's author of a great book as well as her TC commentary debut, Why She Loves Broadcasting. A lot of talk with Andrea Pekovic. You're not going to want to miss that. And then Gil Gross, who's one of the premier voices in tennis media and also a TC broadcaster. He breaks down last weekend's results. Daniil Medvedev, his third title in a row. Outstanding stuff there. Alex D. Menor's triumph in Acapulco. Marta Kostuk and Donna Vekic winning their respective events. And a detailed preview of both the men's and the women's draw at Indian Wells. The Sunshine Double has began. Great stuff upcoming with Andrea Pekovic and Gil Gross. Let's start the show. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, truly a pleasure. I've been following this player for longer than I'd care to admit. I think she wouldn't like to hear how long <laughs> either. Uh, <they're>, her reputation <laughs> precedes her uh, true joy to follow. And now to watch on commentary. It's a former top 10 player, uh, retired just last year, Andrea Pekovic. But thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for coming to Tennis Channel Inside In.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. My first week of work here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so what I heard about you... From people in this building, I won't name names, was oh. that you're gonna love to talk to Andrea. She's very outspoken.
2: Oh. <laughs> Is that fair? And <laughs> uh, now I have so much pressure on myself. I do like to yeah. voice my opinion, uh, yeah. I prefer that than to just try and talk. And yeah. beat around the bush but uh, I tried to be always diplomatic.
1: So where did that come from was that just growing up is that in your 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 childhood from the you know Yugoslavian Serbian side were <laughs> you always like this or did you kind of grow into your voice?
2: No I think I grew into it uh, I always had opinions and I always loved I was always very curious and loved to read mm-hmm. and inform myself on different topics but I think you need to and not you don't need to, but for me it was that way. I needed to become a proper adult before I was able to actually um, voice my opinion and argue for my opinion i think everyone can voice an opinion that's not the issue but then to have arguments following them up and why you think that way is a different story
1: so i've I've heard in your backstory. i know your dad is is very instrumental to your tennis career and and i always kind of wonder was tennis the first love were there other interests other sports i know off the court you love a lot of different things (laughs) but did you even look at athletics competitively earlier did you just kind of fall in love with that over time
2: Um, You know, I played, the only other sport I played a little bit was basketball. But really, if I think about it, it was always tennis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the basketball thing was just my dad wanted, I have a little sister too. He wanted us to do some kind of team sports, just Mm -hmm. a little bit to have that feel of being in a team and how it's so different because tennis can be very, very lonely.
1: (laughs) Do you you feel – and I wasn't even planning to ask that, but you bring up a good point. Do you feel like because it's such a lonely individual sport – I feel like whenever there's a chance to play doubles or be Fed Cup or part of a Mm -hmm. team, tennis players jump at it because they're just missing that feeling.
2: (laughs) I think so. For me, it was definitely the case. I always played Fed Cup. I always loved the team competitions. I played Bundesliga, Mm -hmm. which is our league type of sports in Germany, uh, for a very long time. And I think, unfortunately, in doubles, I couldn't really... um, raise my ranking as quickly as i did yeah. in singles so that was not a big option for me unfortunately i always enjoyed that too but i do think um that tennis players just feel <laughs> the relief of distributing <laughs> the pressure on yeah. some few more shoulders than just yourself yeah it's
1: nice i mean the credit's great right but the blame would be good to kind of share yeah, around exactly too. exactly uh, what was it like for you growing up at the time you did in germany when i mean i guess you could call it Steffi mania. Mm. You had Boris Becker too, but two titans, two of still the greatest in their country, some of the greatest ever. What was it like to grow up as a child when those two were just lighting it up?
2: Well, it was a really, really strange period for German tennis. And for me as a growing tennis professional, yeah. it was very bizarre because... I grew up, when I was a very small child, I grew up in this tennis mania in Germany, where everyone would <laughs> wake up at three in the morning to watch Boris play at the US Open or cheer Steffi on in Australia. And then all of a sudden, we were in the slump. There was mm. Tommy Haas and Nikola Kiefer, but... Uh, on the women's side, there were not many more players coming after that. And then there was when I started to actually pursue tennis and wanted to become a professional when I was a teenager, all of a sudden we had no players in the top anymore. And so tennis just fell off the radar. So it was this bizarre juxtaposition of Mm -hmm. everyone watching tennis (laughs) and nobody watching tennis, you know?
1: (laughs) I mean, it's a tough act to follow. No one really talks about that, the boom of the game, but also... Like these unicorns, and I'll say, they don't mm-hmm. grow on trees, the the talent that they possess. I feel like other countries have that, too. A lot of European countries that has such proud lineage, I mean, even outside of Europe and Australia, it's a tough act to follow when you have legends that come before you. And unfortunately, it was your generation, you're right, that kind of felt the pressure.
2: Yeah, we did. And I think... It only somewhat lifted when Angie Kerber won the first her first Slam in Australian yeah. Open. Um, but for me, for example, when I reached the top ten, I was the first player to reach the top ten after Steffi and Anke Huber. Mm-hmm. and that was a great success for me. I was yeah. very happy, and obviously, I wanted more. But um, I was limited in my game and in some measures. And um, but everyone expected me, <laughs> yeah. or just I don't think they expected me, but they just thought okay top 10 is fine but where are the slams
1: <laughs> well congrats you mentioned her congrats to Angie Kerber had her first yeah. kid recently um, oh, yeah, and exactly. just a, just aside yeah, did so you cute. expect that 2016 from her like I, I we'd all followed her she was in the top 20 yeah. into the top 10 but that was one of the iconic years in, in tennis history and it almost I mean was yeah. that anywhere on the German tennis radar at the time
2: Well, I don't think it was on the German tennis radar, but it always had been on mine, in a sense. Obviously, that year was crazy. (laughs) She almost won gold medal at the Olympic Games. She just lost to Monica Puig in a crazy match, but she won two slams, ended up being number one in the world, went on a great winning streak. However, I do have to say I practiced with her all Mm -hmm. my life, and if we played tennis without serve, it was just baseline. Angie Kerber, by far, would have been the best player we've ever seen. Oh, wow. She is unbeatable from the back of the line. Unfortunately, she's kind of short. She doesn't have a lot of um, upper body strength, so the surf could hurt her in the past. Um, it helps that she's a lefty, but from the baseline, I really have rarely played mm. against a player that mm. reads the game. It's more how she reads the right. game. She's so instinctual. Um, she moves so efficient. She's never really been injured because she just moves so efficiently on the court. And it's a joy ch- to watch as a, as a tennis expert, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad that she had yeah. the success <laughs> that she had.
1: Happy for as well. And, yeah, just <laughs> mentioned, like, could you imagine being from Switzerland coming up now yeah, and just having to follow that act? Like, it's, you know, it's crazy. Uh, so your pro journey, and, and I know it was a, a lengthy career, 15-plus years, 2007 was the run where kind of everyone got introduced to you worldwide, that Roland Garros run. You go through qualities, you mm-hmm. win a match, and then it's Bartoli who goes on to be a major champion. Was that, and, and I always wonder with pros, was that when you kind of felt like a legitimate professional or that give you the confidence that, okay, not only can I make it, but I can play and beat some of the best?
2: Yeah, I think there are two types of players, uh, at least from what I've learned over over the, well, now quite long career. <laughs> um, there were players like Maria Sharapova who came on the scene, or Serena as well, and just believed they were the best. Mm-hmm. And they had this inherent confidence. They walked out on court and they knew and wanted to beat everyone. I was the other type of player. Mm-hmm. I needed to gain confidence. Yeah. So just as an example, uh, when I started playing on the Pro Tour and I played the 10Ks, that's the lowest grade <laughs> tournament, yeah. um, I lost first round, second round, I made a quarters, and when I won my first 10K, I won six in the row. Mm. Because I <laughs> yeah. then, you know, I needed that, oh, I'm good enough for this level, yeah. yet now let's move on to the next. And then right. it, it kind of went... It, through my career it went on like this then when i broke the barrier of the 25k mm-hmm. then i won 525k and that's how i moved on and exactly that run at the french open and yeah. it, thank you for <laughs> not mentioning it i was up seven love against mario <laughs> yeah, Bartoli. Yeah, i was up 6010 yeah. and yeah. i think 40 15
1: and i still lost <laughs> it's not about the losses on here it's, we don't need to we don't need to revisit those but no i mean I, I, it's true though and, and you admitting it is kind of refreshing too because there's a lot of players that don't admit that they say that they're confident and really they aren't i just i find it so interesting the waves of tennis it's it's unlike any other sport we see it now we see it with young players ben shelton and and Garuna, what he's doing and the women as well but you break into the top 50 top 40 there's pressure to keep following it up and mm-hmm. then defend the points the next year. I I, I use the uh, metaphor, it's like a wave, because it's yeah. very rare that you're the Carlos Alcaraz type yes. that just rides to the top. Yes,
2: and although Holger Rune has that kind of inherent confidence <laughs> that he brings on court, he mm-hmm. just has a street fighter mentality. Yeah. I, I really love his attitude. I think half of his success is really owed to his attitude that he has. But that's right, and we see it so... Many times, I would say with almost every player except the greats, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned, uh, the Nadals and Djokovic's and Federer, there is always that famous sophomore slump. And that's just because all of the sudden it's easy (laughs) as an underdog. Nobody expects anything Mm -hmm. of you. Nobody knows you. You know, people study your game only once you've played on the bigger stages for a while. And then you come into your next year, you're three, like Kasper Rudner, right? Right. He ended the year in a tremendous manner, played two finals in majors, and now people have studied his game. He has that much more pressure. You can see him tensing up. His Mm -hmm. shoulders are a little high. You can see it in his body language. And he will balance himself. He's too good of a player to not to. It will balance itself out. But everyone needs to go through these expectations. And uh, and that's hard to do. And there are only very few that don't seem to be bothered by
1: it. Well, I've asked this question the other way, but you don't have to name any names. But were you ever on the other side? Were you kind of got taken aback by someone you didn't know and then you kind of studied the film and okay i'm able to do things when i break down what they're trying to do <laughs>
2: um so oh that's a good question well i did two players i never i was never able to beat them unfortunately uh, so maybe that is <laughs> it. yeah but radvanska yeah. and Halep, um i used to lose to them fairly easy and then I started studying the game and I Mm. watched all their matches and I always sat down with my notebook and took notes and then in the later stages I got close I never really beat them and (laughs) I was so upset when (laughs) Radwanska retired because I was like ah I never beat her why did she retire those were close
1: matches at the end and you guys in the end I got close. both players and yourself they play a certain way you play like the complete opposite opposite way yeah so I thought they were always fun to watch I know probably not for your (laughs) (laughs) sake remembering it more with andrea pekovich here on tennis channel insight and uh, the unfortunate part of your career is i mean i guess it's a blessing too you were able to accomplish so much with the injury history mm-hmm. and, and looking back i didn't realize how far back the injury history started as far back as i think aussie 2008 yep. you were dealing with stuff was that something that at a point you just decided i, I just have to deal with it like i'm never gonna be fully healthy
2: um I think so and I do think now that I'm retired and I'm an adult and I'm looking mm-hmm. back on my career and I'm also seeing many of my colleagues and how mm-hmm. their careers progressed I do think that that big injury I tore my ACL at the Aussie Open when I was 19 years old I do think that all the other mm. injuries came because of that. Because oh. Oh. it kind of disbalanced my whole body after that. It was a big surgery at a very young age. My body was still growing. And I think everything that, because I, I kept having problems mm. with exactly that knee. Then after 10 years on tour, I started having problems with the other knee because I was compensating for all these years that I had to have trouble with <laughs> my right knee. And so just uh, like looking back at my career, I think when you get, injured very early on and you see it a little bit with Rafael Nadal who was injured very early on and he keeps struggling with these things I think that's something that you can see with a lot of players and uh, you know in the end I just accepted it and did the best with the body I have but um, sometimes it was sad
1: (laughs) Did, did you feel pressure to just keep going and fight through whether that be financial pressure or your ranking or just your place in the game it's almost like tennis is this like merry-go-round or carousel, it just doesn't stop. Did you feel that pressure to keep going?
2: Well, you know what the biggest pressure for me was when I was injured, just seeing the others that you played with progress while you were Mm -hmm. in rehab or in the Mm -hmm. hospital bed because you can see, I I love, I don't know how the other players are, but I love watching tennis, so I always kept watching while I was injured, and I could see, oh, that girl, we were on Mm -hmm. the same level, but now she's had a big a step of progression yeah. she's improved her serve or her forehand or whatever it was and i was meanwhile just for the 15th time <laughs> lifting the same weight over and over again and <laughs> just crying myself to sleep at night so that was really hard and, you know, I was always somebody that was really fueled by revenge, I will call it. <laughs> okay. It's not the right All word, right. but more like it fueled me when people said, oh, she's done for, yeah. she's been injured so much, she's never going to come back. And yeah. it kind of fueled me to show them. So that's to help me in a way. <laughs> well,
1: 2012 was what, three injuries, three different types of injuries, yeah. different body parts. And I know you were young, like 24, 25. Was there any thought then, like, maybe this is it?
2: Strangely enough, there wasn't. What I did have, so I never really lost the will to come back, but I have to say I really did lose the belief I could come back after Mm -hmm. the, especially the third injury. And that was really hard because um, it took me so long to gained that back. My right. body was. It took you know three to six months, like it is, and then it takes another year to be fully sure. um, the same that you were before an injury. But my mind, it really took almost mm-hmm. two years to get that self belief back and to to feel like I belong and that I can still do it. That was much harder.
1: Well, one of the things that's always struck me about you is just being open and transparent with everything, good and bad, which yeah. is I guess <laughs> refreshing or a coping <laughs> mechanism, however you want to put it. But The story you told uh, on one of our other shows, on the Kamal Murray podcast, about taking a month off when you were, what, 28, 29 Mm -hmm. and just living in New York? Yeah. Was that, I just, was that spontaneous? Did you decide, okay, I need this mental break. I'm having, you know, I I need to recharge more than anything?
2: Yes. So that time... Um, And and just what I mentioned now with the revenge part, I think that really came back to bite me a little bit because I was fueled by this, I'm going to show everyone, I'm going to show everyone, I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back. And then when I did come back to the top 10... I was like a balloon that just deflated. Okay. I had nothing to, not to live for anymore, but I had nothing to play for anymore and that was exactly in that year and that was when my motivation started and I never had that before and then after that as well, not, um, my motivation dwindled, I was mm-hmm. having trouble practicing and trouble playing matches and uh, it was just the mm. traveling was really hard for me all of a yeah. sudden, which I also had never minded. And that's why I took, I okay. decided to take the break. And uh, and that really helped me in actually deciding for tennis again, you know, okay. deci- like picking the sport, choosing it again. And then after that, I had some of the best years of my career, not in terms of results, unfortunately, because I did get older, but in terms of the love for the sport. Yeah. And I was just so grateful to be playing.
1: It's almost like, you might not have lasted as long as you did without that little break as short as it was, it kind of recharged you to give you more years on the back end.
2: Yes, definitely. So the thing, what the biggest difference was every loss that I had before that break was like an end of the world. Uh, Like the apocalypse (laughs) came over me and just took me away. And after that decision and that choosing of tennis, it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's a loss, but this is what I want to do.
1: I chose this. It's like of all the things to get jealous of with Roger Federer, the one that gets me and maybe other tennis players too, is how at the end of his career, it's like five, 10 minutes. He's over a loss. Yeah. (laughs) Like there are stories of him after Wimbledon 2019 where he's fine, you know, 20 minutes later. It's like maybe not all the way there, but just to be able to roll off losses. Yeah. I I mean, that's,
2: that's probably his biggest, (laughs) his biggest strength, the short term memory. But the thing that I was most taken aback, I saw an interview with him where he said, my biggest strength is that whenever I go with the same mind with the same mindset and the same feeling onto the court yeah. every time no matter which round it is and I was like Roger I changed <laughs> my mood just in the warm-up five <laughs> yeah. times what are you talking yeah. about well, here wow.
1: <laughs> yeah I don't know it's a different guy for sure um, is, yes was that around the time I guess a better way to ask it would be when did you when did that love affair with New York City start? Because now that's like your place to be in America.
2: Yeah. So interestingly enough, it kind of collided with my with the ga- gain of confidence I had in tennis because. Uh, I'm kind of an anxious person now. I'm an adult and I'm much more confident. Anxious? I was like, New York City?
1: <laughs> well, yeah. and exactly. And yeah. the first
2: time I was in New York City, yeah. I was, <laughs> I, it was for the US Open. Yeah. It was my first main draw of a slam. And I was just so overwhelmed by the city. Yeah. And I was so anxious and just going out. And like the highest of my <laughs> feelings was to go across the street to get a coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I conquered the world. <laughs> and then when, this, when I developed my personality and grew mm-hmm. into myself, and then I started having friends, Friends there it felt like oh the city that I was so scared of oh now i finally know how to you you know take the train and uh mm. and just call yeah. a cab and you know yell at the bartender whatever it is what <laughs> that you do as yeah. a new yorker and uh and it was similar with tennis i needed to always find my footing oh. but then once i had it i felt really good about myself. that's good you conquered your fears <laughs> yes, in new york exactly. city
1: <laughs> so i have to ask was the 2010 us open the origin of the dance or would you be doing that in the practice videos and stuff because that's where it kind of became mainstream yes Your petco dance that everyone has their yeah. take on now and, and i've noticed that it's not always the same yeah. sometimes it's a little different
2: well i changed it though. <laughs> yeah. yeah so the thing was i had a terrible losing streak before the u.s open and i was so depressed about it i was because i was playing really well in practice and i think the reason i was losing in matches was because i started s- things started clicking for me in practice and i think i felt that i had made a next I had progressed my game to the mm-hmm. next level, and I just felt the pressure in the matches to bring it. And, um, and my coach <laughs> told me, okay, and I played against Nadia Petrova, yeah. who was a top seed at the US Open, and he told me, okay, if you win this match, and I know you can, you have to do something really special. <laughs> and at that time, the I was playing on Louis Armstrong Stadium. I don't know if they still do that. At that time, you gave them five of your favorite songs, and they would play it oh. when you walk out on court, and when you win the Mm -hmm. match. And so I won that match seven, six in the third. And I was like, Oh, I have to do something. And my coach is looking at me just (laughs) like hand gesturing. What are you going to do? (laughs) And they played that tune that I had put down. I don't even remember which song it was. And it just came to mind. And then I was stuck with it for the rest of my career. I mean, that's probably
1: what you're most known for. I don't know if that's how you drew it up or but hey that's probably how you're most known with the masses it was
2: not calculated and i think that's why i started to change it up because um in the beginning it was super yeah. fun and then people people started flocking to my matches to see it but then after a while i would play a bad match and i didn't feel like dancing <laughs> and i just wanted to pack my bags and leave and people were like petco dance petco dance and then it was like forced oh smile no. you know oh and that's no. when i started to change it up so it's more spontaneous
1: is it around this time or i guess maybe later that you started to see yourself as a veteran like where was the time if is there one moment do you have that clandestine moment when it's like wow i'm one of the not older but i'm one of the middle of the pack age i'm not a young pup anymore
2: <laughs> well you know what actually tennis channel was the one that oh, made no. me aware of it i was there was a replay of a match of mine and i played well i won and when i won the commentator i think uh, said and the veteran, Andrea Petkovic, goes through. And I was like, oh, no.
1: <laughs> oh, we did it. It's our fault. See, I set us up. I and I swore
2: that. to myself I will never call a player a veteran.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, I mean, look, veteran can be good. You don't want to say, like, yeah, the old veteran true. or the wily veteran. That's yeah. true. Uh, more with uh, Andrea Petkovic here on Tennis Channel Insight. In. Uh, and another thing that's admirable about your approach to tennis was you were open about the finish line approaching. And then when it came. Was that something that you were targeting U.S. Open 2022? Did it feel like the right time for you to say goodbye? Was there a moment when you said, okay, I think I'm winding down? if you could just talk me through that process.
2: Yeah, um, uh, that was the hard, some of the hardest processes I went through. Um, so I that year was the first year, uh, 2022, last year, was the first year that I was not able to practice in a way I was used to anymore. Meaning whenever I had a few hard practice days, I would get injured, mm. not badly, but I would have a little muscle strain or get so tired that I couldn't, um, couldn't, Put in the same intensity on the on the third or fourth day, and I started to feel it, and I could feel my body going up and down. I was out for Indian Wells, Miami, with an adductor strain, so there were these little Mm -hmm. things just seeping in. When I had really hard practices, we uh, practice weeks. My immune system would drop down, I would get sick, I would get a cold, you know, all these little yeah. things and I could feel that my recovery process was, had slowed down so much that it was hard for me to rewind. And so I knew the end was coming and then I decided, okay, um, US Open is going right. to be it. And I didn't want to announce it, actually, (laughs) because I didn't want to have that extra pressure. And then my team was like, well, but you have to let your fans know. I wake up the next day, (laughs) I turn on my phone, and I have 100 direct messages on my phone, Serena Williams retiring at the (laughs) US Open. And I was like, okay, now it doesn't matter. Nobody (laughs) will care about poor little Andrea at the US Open. It was actually, I have to say, looking back at it, It was much easier for me that Serena was retiring at the same time. A few German journalists asked me a bunch of questions, but nobody else cared. And I could kind of go through all these emotions because it was really hard. And I feel like I saw it on Serena's face as well. For me, the transformation process was much harder than when I actually was done with it. Then I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. next chapter.
1: So when you were done, you felt peace. That was... Better. You weren't struggling post tennis into what you wanted to do. It was just not really the yes off. not yeah. really
2: but the three months before right. i was like crying in every practice because yeah. when i was playing well i was like oh why am i retiring right. and yeah. if i was playing bad i was like oh i should retire today <laughs> so it was just like very dramatic yeah. and and then, funnily enough, when I did, uh, I lost to Bencic at the yeah. U.S. Open. It was a good match. I was glad that I played a good match in the end, and um, and then it was over, and I was like yeah. walking around with a <laughs> glass of champagne, and my team was just bawling, because they had bottled in all the emotions while I was going and then through And you were there. fine. Yeah. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm free. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Well,
1: and I think it's good you played a good match with a good player. I mean, I, you don't get to pick your last match a lot of times, but no. it's good that it was with a very very quality opponent going out strong. Did you have any regrets, I guess, when you reflected back on anything with your tennis career or are you at peace with kind of how it all went down?
2: Well, two things I would have d- done differently when I was in the top 10, when I played my best year. I really, I mean, on the on the one hand, that's what made me s- strong and, uh, and so ambitious. But on the other hand, now looking back, I regret that I didn't stop at one moment and was like, hey, I did well until now. I was in this... Um, in this Ferris wheel of, I want more. I'm 10 now, but now I want to be nine. Oh, now I'm nine. I want to be five. Mm-hmm. I want to be, and you know, I never stopped and was just like, I achieved a lot. I'm mm-hmm. happy. And now let's try and attack the next goal. I was just like, so I felt more pressure than mm-hmm. ever to do better. Um, and then, Bringing a little bit related to that, the injuries that I had then afterwards in 2012 were were pains and bits that I had felt in my body that I pushed through in order to get my ranking up even higher. And I would have pulled the trigger a little bit earlier. I would have gone to the doctor a little earlier and maybe it wouldn't have had to become that bad.
1: Well, if those are the regrets, I think they're, that's their minor considering (laughs) the accomplishments (laughs) and it it was a, it was a tremendous career. And and you're someone to ask this now, as we look at the next generation, do you think that there should be more personality shown highlighted? I mean, you'd be the one to ask because you were (laughs) showing a lot of it when you played, but what do you think about the personalities being highlighted of the next gen?
2: Well, the thing is, uh, I do think we are, we are having some great personalities. Again, I think social media helps. In hi- it, there are a lot of uh, bad things about social media, but yeah. one good thing is that it highlights the personalities a little bit more. Um, the thing is, it has to feel natural to the player. If you force right. somebody to be something they are not, it will affect their game and then just the balance of like how much personality can I show without mm-hmm. showing too many weaknesses? I think that's basically mm-hmm. the key. And uh, and just me now working as a writer and in media, I think it's also. Um, a little bit the task of of the media to tell the stories for the players mm-hmm. in, a, in a nice way to tell the narratives and show a little bit of yeah. their uniqueness and their personalities but uh, but yeah I, I do think that um, that we need these and especially in tennis that is a, an individual sport and when you watch a match if you watch a two-hour match you will never forget these two players <laughs> in your life probably ever you see you see if you think about other yeah. sports American football they have the The helmets on hockey. You come from hockey. They have the helmets on. But if you watch tennis, it's two people on the TV for two hours, and you constantly see their faces. And I think. Um, as the tennis media, we can do better to tell these stories.
1: It's a great point because you think about the casual quote-unquote fans that might only watch big matches, but they know everything about Serena, Nadal, Federer, yeah. Djokovic because they're in these big matches all the time and they're <laughs> you know, watching them. And if anybody knows how to deal with social media and you know, the occasional troll and haters, it's you. you know, yeah. It's just like, <laughs> hey... Like the bit of a return return her surf comment was one of the funnier yeah. ways to deal with it.
2: Well, you know, I I, I consider myself uh. to be the biggest troll on social okay. media. So if you troll a
1: troll, uh, yeah. you're
2: done for. It's like
1: echoing a stand up <laughs> comic, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and and I guess you know, the the author side of things. I wanted to get to that because you wrote that book uh, Between Glory and Honor, uh, Mm -hmm. Lies the Night. Mm -hmm. Tried to read some of it. It's actually in German. So I wasn't able to read it. (laughs)
2: Sorry. But
1: uh, where did that come from that you wanted to write, write a book and then also just stay active as a new aspiring journalist?
2: Well, so the thing was, it's actually very very funny. When I was, it relates all back to tennis, like everything in my (laughs) life does. When I was a teenager, I didn't have any money and my family didn't have money to send me on tour with a coach so I was traveling alone always and I remember very distinctly when I was 16 years old uh, one girl was next to me at lunch with her coach and they were going through her match and he was telling her well a three all you missed a forehand in the net and you should play a little higher margin and I sat there and I was like that is brilliant how can I coach myself so what I started to do <laughs> is write down narratives of my matches and then with two days of a break to have the emotions subside, I would read through my match report and try to coach myself. Or because my dad was my coach, I would call him Mm -hmm. and tell him, hey, I did this and this mistake, what do you think? And, and that's when I discovered that when I write, it's like therapeutic for me mm. and I can get a lot of things out and things come out on page that I didn't know I was struggling with. And so I, I had always been writing since I was a teenager. I just never had the idea that some of this might be published. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, now it's, it's published in the know and, and it's just funny too because you saw at the end of your career kids coming up with gaming in different ways yeah. and you're the old school journalist just <laughs> yeah, writing yeah, away just the
2: old school with the note you know notebook and a pen and like i That's have a so pen funny. behind yeah. my ear
1: <laughs> just jotting something down in a cafe writing yes. away uh, and then, of course, the commentary career, which you're at Tennis Channel this week, first week here. I didn't realize first week American commentating.
2: Yes, I never, wow. I never done commentary in
1: English. It's been good to listen to. Um, you know, I think the FCC might have a little complaint over some of the language, but no, no, no comment, <laughs> no comment there. But what's it been like? You've been working with Mark Knowles. He's a, a true professional. My guy Panda producing. I mean, what's it been like getting used to our operation, all the tennis this week?
2: <laughs> it was so fun. Uh, I mean. I love the sport and I was so lucky to work with Mark and Panda just because Mark... does the job of the play-by-play but as we all know he has incredible tennis knowledge so and I commentated here okay. on men's matches mm-hmm. which I always watched I watch all the tennis but when I watch a women's match especially when I was still playing I would sit there with my molluskin and write down notes what uh, players were doing and I didn't do that for the men's but um but just in working with Mark and and Panda just getting their insights on everything and being walked through it that was uh, that was such a great experience and it's so fun and funnily enough it's easier for me in English sometimes because a lot of the <laughs> vocabulary is English in yeah. tennis anyways you yeah. know so that was okay <laughs>
1: No I think it's great and I think you, you highlight a point now that the you don't have the skin in the game the emotional investment in yeah. with the women's matches you can watch it from a different perspective and not you're not studying these players like I'm gonna have to beat them someday. Yeah
2: exactly and you know what I was just the only thing I was worried about and that sometimes happens with players that are just recently retired, especially in football and soccer in Germany, you see it a lot. They don't want to throw their colleagues under a bus, so they tiptoe around. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was afraid that I'm going to be... like cautious with what I say and I don't have that feeling at all <laughs> <No>. <laughs> good or bad yeah. but I just like I feel uh, I try to explain what ha- I always I would never trash a player for playing bad I would always try and explain why things are happening and yeah. mostly it's because your opponent is doing something really well in a way that makes you play worse and yeah. uh, and just with my inside, I just try to explain right. these things
1: and I think from the outside from the perspective that I see more than the current player it's Knowing the strategies and approaches that make sense, that's where the analysts are, are, you know, the experts in the field. Fans love the game, they're passionate about it, but they want to hear from the experts. What would work? Why isn't this working? And as a former player, what would you do differently? So,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, yesterday was really, uh, a really fun match to watch between Tiafo and Fritz mm. because it seemed on paper not a very close match, but just tactically, because the two men knew each mm-hmm. other so well, it was so fascinating for me to watch how they tried to get into yeah. each other's weaknesses. And I see my job as bringing that perspective to the audience and trying to explain what each of the men are trying to do and it's and tennis is really like a psychological chess game and that's why it's so beautiful and i love it
1: it's a great time for tennis i keep repeating it Uh, andrea pekovich this has been a blast the last thing what's next for you going forward is it a lot more commentary writing and are you officially officially done
2: <laughs> I am officially done, okay. officially, officially. Okay. I will just have one last uh, farewell match in Germany because okay. I've uh, played my last match in America, so I wanted to do that one more in uh, in Germany. I will be commentating more, hopefully, for Tennis Channel. Obviously, uh, I do some sports TV work in mm-hmm. Germany as well writing is my passion after my biggest passion mm-hmm. after tennis so hopefully I can do more of that I am working on my second book right awesome. now and so um, unfortunately you will still have to deal with me okay. in the future
1: well it's gonna you're gonna be like 70 80 years old you're gonna go to Poland find aga yeah. and you're gonna be like this isn't over yes. I want my revenge
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> we can't finish until we, this rivalry is not over until I beat you uh, Andrea Pekovich, thank you so much for your time thank you for joining tennis channel inside in and best of luck with everything
2: thank you though so fun
1: (laughs) well that was a tremendous chat with Andrea Pekovich. She's insightful, she's entertaining, and I'm sure I'll be seeing her again given the rave reviews that her TC commentary debut got. But thanks again to Andrea Pekovic. Now we're gonna switch it up. We're gonna preview Indian Wells with Gil Gross. He's a TC broadcaster. He also has a podcast that he hosts with a couple other tremendous people called Three on our TC Podcast Network. And he is a premier voice in tennis media and on social media as well. We break down Indian Wells, the men's draw, the women's draw. We look at last weekend's result, Medvedev on fire. What will happen in the desert? How will it all transpire? Here's Gil Gross to break it all down now on Tennis Channel Inside In. All right, now with us on Tennis Channel Inside In, you can catch him calling matches. He hosts the three podcasts on our Tennis Channel podcast network. Even saw him on second serve as well last week. Uh, Gil Gross, thanks for coming back to the show. And thanks for, you know, doing the Sitsapos route and handing out signed photos as well when you're walking in. What did I do? (laughs) The signed photographs, you know. I know you like to do the signed headshots like Sitsipas does.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Well, it's always a pleasure to be on, Mitch. Uh, Great to do this in person. I believe this is the highest production value podcast in all of tennis. I'm confident in that. Now, you might be modest about it, but I'm... I'm going to say it, and I'm going to stick with it. We make
1: the most with less, so we really do. We try our best to put on a heck of a show. Uh, and if you're listening, watching us, Metaverse, YouTube channel, Tennis Channel website, we try to just attack you from all sides so you just can't get rid of us. But before we go to Indian Wells, and this is you know the fifth major, just such a great time of year, the tournament's kicking off. I like to recap, and there's not really segments on this show, but you know we got to talk title town every week. I want to just give credit where credit is due. Four different champions last week, starting with Daniil Medvedev completing the hat trick three in a row. He beats Andre Rublev in Dubai, goes through Djokovic to do that. Medvedev back on track, and, and what he does and how he does it, Gil. You mentioned how the cardio is just always going to be there. He's in tremendous shape, but he's always played his best when it seems like he's just not taking himself or taking it too seriously. He's so relaxed and confident out there. And this was Medvedev about as good as he's ever looked, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, so winning three titles in a row is supposed to be this really rare thing. Murray did it in 2011, and then we went 10 years on the ATP side without seeing it once. Yeah. Suddenly... We've seen it three years in a row. Rude did it post Wimbledon clay in 2021. Felix did it last fall on the indoor hard courts. And now Medvedev has done it. Of all those three examples, Medvedev's is the most impressive because we're looking at two, five hundreds. We're looking at three top 10 wins unless I'm no four because Rublev. So four top 10 wins, Djokovic Felix twice and, and Rublev. And, uh, it was kind of like his stock hit the lowest point also after the Australian Open. I felt that quarter loss in straight sets, round three of the Australian Open, was the most concerning loss that we've seen from right. Medvedev in like the last 13 months. So I feel like his stock hit that bottom point, yeah. and then now three weeks it's just shot up. Well, it's weird that people,
1: you know, in general, that's just kind of what we do here as as sports fans, is what's wrong with this guy who used to win all the time that he's not winning? Have they figured him out? Is he broken? All this stuff. And, yes, he wasn't playing his best tennis, and people watch film and figure out ways to attack him, but I was never worried that he wasn't going to be a factor. I think it's fair to always be concerned, is have you lost your spot as the top guy at rarefied air? But as it stands right now, given the stuff on and off the court with some of these other players he's very much in the mix to be a threat at every tournament on all surfaces and how he did it I mean he's had Rublev's number in a lot of these matches it was the Djokovic match in this in the semifinals that really was the statement that I'm here and I'm, I'm back to to win he, he only beats Djokovic when he's number one in the world like that's just how this works
0: <laughs> right right I know that that's a, a funny <laughs> stat no yeah. doubt I think you're you're spot on there like it's the concern for Medvedev if you're going to be concerned and this was the case last year and this was the case 4 weeks ago was was never that he's not going to be in the mix it's oh is he going to be number 1 again I I still have questions about that to be completely And that's frank. fair. Yeah. It's it's a fair thing
1: and it's you know number 1 is so rare it's not <laughs> common and yes <laughs> did he take advantage of an opening in the schedule sure but that's what Andy Murray did in 2016 that's what players historically have done. The comments after though, I mean that like the past chill in the air will just never go away between those two.
0: It's a beautiful thing. It's such it. a breath of fresh yeah. air. Like I don't want them to like each other. Unfortunately with things like the labor cup, um, sometimes they are forced to pretend to like each other and they do that. They're professionals, but uh, rivalries are great. Beef is nice. It, <laughs> So don't pretend to like each other. Like that's the thing. You know? Also like T.T. Poss's comments were. were there are
1: comments we we would make honestly, like does Rublev have weapons is a fair comment. Sure. After you lose. And I was working that day and Jim Curry on TC live. So that sounds like every guy that I beat in the mm-hmm. media after. So it mm-hmm. was store loser ish, but you know, Rublev's handled it with grace too, that it wasn't, you know, it could have been a guy blowing off steam in a tough moment after a loss, which, We've all probably said stuff we've regretted in the moments after tough competitive moments or just bad moments there. But no, I, I think, look, they're not doing any, they're not trashing each other personally. They just don't like each other and they're going to call each other out. And I think it's great for the sport.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, the, and and that was my take on those Pass comments a while back on Rublev. Do they make any sense? No. Like the player with the most variety and artistry is not the better player in a tennis match. The player who won Uh almost always in this sport, particularly where you can't blame the referees. What was the better player? Uh, I mean, especially it's one on one. You have hundreds of points in a given match to play against a guy. If you lose, you weren't the better player. So that's that. Um, And yeah, I agree with you. It it does sound like something that we would um, say. Do you want to? Talk about the Medvedev win over Djokovic.
1: I do. And just from the sense that Djokovic's, I guess, conditioning or lack thereof. He was injured in Australia. He hadn't really been able to train, practice properly. He rounds himself into form seemingly in that tournament after the first match. That was an impressive win by Medvedev. But I think we can say it wasn't tip-top Djokovic shape.
0: It wasn't. Yeah. As much as I would love to give Medvedev the fullest of flowers and say he beat a full power Novak Djokovic. You watch the match, and that's that's not what it looked like, and it's not what it was. Novak said coming into the tournament that he didn't train for most of February. Now, I don't know if that's regularly programmed scheduling uh, where he likes to kind of take a break and take his foot off the gas pedal after that australian open because he wants to peak for majors and he needs to preserve his body now in his mid-30s or if it's because of the hamstring and he had to have a particularly light february just to let that heal i don't know whichever it was doesn't matter point is he wasn't training much uh, in february and it showed from a cardiovascular standpoint the long rallies in that match mitch were one-way traffic for medvedev and it's not look medvedev is really tough in those kinds of points I feel like he's been 50-50 with Djokovic in those kinds of points throughout their head-to-head, yeah. which has served him really well. But Novak, as much as he likes to point Shorten against Medvedev, when the rallies get long, he needs to be able to hang. He wasn't able to hang yeah. in this match. Rallies nine shots or more were 10-5 for Medvedev, which is an absolute blowout, mm-hmm. really, when you look at the percentage. And it was a close match. That makes all the difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are great points, and I, it, it remains to be seen, as great as Medvedev has played, how he does against a tip-top Novak Djokovic. Don't want to take anything away. He won what was in front of him. He won another tournament. He's riding sky high. We're going to come back to these guys in a second, but the other men's champion Alex Minaur, wins an Acapulco, an entertaining Acapulco. It had a little bit of everything. That Fritz Paul match in the semis was just a, a terrific spectacle itself, but Minaur beats Paul in the finals, and, I'd say this, Gil, he's been much maligned the last couple of years. Demonar has kind of been, you know, with Kyrgios, that Aussie hope, and he may have plateaued, we we had thought, and what's going on there, and he got criticized at home by a lot of his critics, but he wins this tournament, and he's, you know, I guess I would say this, built for those elements. Like, if if you're going to have a player that battles the heat and has to deal with a lot of chaos, Demonar is a pretty safe bet to do well.
0: Yeah, that's why. It's, I think it's hard for anybody to really get on him because you know he's trying as hard as he possibly can. The players who usually take the most heat for plateauing are players who leave room for effort yeah. to be questioned. He's getting
1: the most out of his body in his game. Totally. Yeah.
0: Uh, but with that said, all you have to do is kind of track his rankings. There was plateauing. In 2019, he hit 18 in the world, which is where he's at right now. And he was, he was young. Uh, In in 2019, I don't know how old he was exactly, but early 20s. You expect a player to go up from there, and Alex, in the larger picture, kind of did not go up from there. He's been hanging around, and his career high is 15, but he spent two weeks there before going right back to 18.
1: How much of that do you think is... The modern game of Venn's tennis is just getting bigger and stronger. Size. Yeah. And and that's where he talks about getting the most out of what he does. And his movement's elite, like all worldly. But there is that power question. That's a fair criticism when he gets to the quarterfinals of big tournaments.
0: Yeah. We don't need to complicate things. A big part of tennis (laughs) is how hard do you hit the ball. And for him off the ground, I don't even think it's the serve. For him, uh, I think he gets good MPH for his height yeah. on the serve. It's it's actually the ground strokes, uh, particularly like the two-handed backhand. I think players go there and they know that they're not really going to get hurt there. Uh, but the forehand, depending on the position, yeah. uh, sometimes it's also a little bit underpowered. If he if he steps into the court and he gets to throw his entire body weight into it, he can get quite a bit on it. But in a regular neutral yeah. situation, he can't. And, But yeah, that, that has been... I think what what stops him from reaching the up, upper echelon, no doubt.
1: I mean, no confidence is a big thing too. So getting this tournament could be good for him going into another one. It was a good 500 win. It was a loaded field. Uh, and, and just one other note, I, I love to see, you don't have to get in the ceiling talk with him, but Tommy Paul building off of Ozzy was great. Mm-hmm. To see. So many times, American or not, we see big result followed by the letdown, followed by you know a lot of publicity. He beats Taylor Fritz and gets to a final against and It seems like he ran out of gas, which is understandable given the
0: semi. But another good result for Tommy Paul in this process. Totally. And this was one of the times where he ran out of gas and it was completely understandable. <laughs> like, earlier in his career, it was a problem in terms of his recovery and his fitness yeah. that I thought, he, he was would it be last the first year, win US win.
1: Open? I kind of understood that one, too. It was the five sets versus Rude and by the fifth, it was just dead on a
0: Yes, that one was also a little bit understandable because <laughs> yeah. he went five sets yeah. against in the first round, and then he went five sets in the second round. <laughs> yeah. So then he was in the third round, yeah, he went yeah. five sets again. Yeah. Uh, but with Paul, I think he's shown a lot of positive things backing up the Australian Open. Tiafo did well last fall after the US Open right. semifinal. These guys... You're right. Uh, the American players, they've done a very good job of building up yeah. not just their ceiling potential, but their consistency
1: yeah. week to week. And Fritz, after a couple losses, like that U.S. Open first-round loss to Brandon Holt, goes and wins a tournament, too. So they're they're backing up good and bad results there. Uh, and the women's champions, as well, I want to give a shout-out to Donna Vekic wins Monterey over, or, over Caroline Garcia, She's kind of been on a little bit of a tear there, a little bit on fire since uh, San Diego last year in October, has a run in Australia, wins this tournament. So got to give her some love uh, as well with Pam Shriver working uh, with her there. And then Marta Kostyuk winning the Austin Open, an emotional title for her, her first title. So two women that got titles at points in their career, different points in their career, but getting that added momentum as we head into the Sunshine Double. A
0: lot of a tear, not a little bit of a tear for Veket. She's 14 and 2 on the season now, which is incredible. Uh, you have the the win in Monterey and then uh, the 4 and 0, or maybe 3 and 0 at United Cup, and then the run to the Australian Open quarterfinals. So, yeah, she's. And then you mentioned San Diego. That was another final. Definitely. Fighting. It's, it's been great
1: to see. Fights out there. A lot of these aren't easy wins either. So, she,
0: there's a lot of battling with her. That's true. And then Costuk, she's overcome a lot. There have been bumps in the road for her. Her progression hasn't been linear, but clearly someone for a long time who's had tons of talent and great to see her putting it together. That's
1: someone that's at the top of my list that I can't believe how young she is based on how long she's been around, right? Mm -hmm. Like what was she Mm -hmm. like 15 or 16 when she was first in that Aussie Open main draw? Yes.
2: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: More with Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Insight. Well, let's look at the Indian Wells draws. It's time to kind of just... Get into the big-picture discussion on how this tournament we could see it unfolding, some storylines, some subplots, uh, starting with the unfortunate of Novak Djokovic not in the tournament. And we don't have to rehash all the ins and outs of that decision of him not being here. But I'm going to ask you this question as the Djokovic whisperer, expert, however we want to say it. Will this, because conditioning is such a huge factor, do you see him not playing in this event affecting him going into the clay court season, going into his Grand Slam chase, because obviously with the ranking points and where he is, he's not in a position of needing this result. But not playing these two perceivable tournaments, is that going to affect him going forward into his chase for Roland Garros and then Wimbledon?
0: Maybe at Monte Carlo, (laughs) but then the problem is there's... Or not the problem, it's actually a good thing for, for Novak Djokovic. There's... Another month until Roland Garros, where he really, really wants to be at his best. We have seen him throughout clay court season, actually. And I don't know, maybe the conditions have something to do with this. Monte Carlo's been his worst clay court masters. Madrid has been a little better. Rome has been the best.
1: I feel like he's that, en- he's that car <laughs> that, that's engine takes a while to rev up in that regard. Because he, a lot of times he's won Miami. He's come over, he's switched the clay, and he's just been sluggish out of the gates. But I also, like last year, for example, everyone talks about what was the match of the year. The short list is Alcaraz and Djokovic Mm -hmm. on clay. And it was great. Props again to Carlos Alcaraz. I'm sounding like a wet blanket, but Djokovic was not in top tip shape in that match and he almost pulled it off.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Because
1: he hadn't gotten the reps in and that's my whole, are the reps not the wins, obviously, in his case, because he's going for Grand Slam, but are the reps more important than actually winning?
0: Look, you're you're probably right. I'll push back a little bit because I think if Djokovic had won that match, nobody was going to be saying right here. he was not one hundred percent because it was a great match. The level was sky high, and then he won Rome the next week. Yeah, so it is hard to say. I mean, if he wasn't at his best, he was at least close. Yeah. And yes, it w- it was a a terrific match. But I also think with Novak at this point in his career, and yeah, there's been some crazy stuff with the Sunshine Double in terms of him not being able to play since twenty nineteen. But even before then, as Novak has aged, he just can't keep the intensity up, and and nobody can. This well, is true. He
1: said it. He when he lost to Roberto Batista Gute in Miami, I think twenty eighteen. Yeah, he said, or maybe 2018-19. He said, look, at this point in the game, my main goal is Grand Slams, so I'm
0: going to try to win every match. But so March is yeah. March is a tough month uh-huh. for that. Yeah, Novak has not been in the quarterfinals of Indian Wells or Miami since twenty sixteen. So where I thought you were going to go with that question is, oh, you know, what is yeah. it going to be like? No Djokovic, no Nadal. How does, that, uh-huh. how does that play out, Sunshine Double? And I was coming into this, this Sunshine Double thinking, man, I'm used to this. Yeah. This yeah. is normal. I don't
1: think many people would, know, would be able to name the last four champions of Indian Wells because it's not <laughs> common knowledge, common names in tennis. That said, Alcaraz, the number one seed, is the top dog, which is a nice place for him given what he's accomplished. I mean, we, we all know where this is going, right? The game is amazing, but health-wise, we're going to be looking for stuff. What are you going to be looking for to make sure, or to,
0: what will you be pointing out health-wise that could be alarming if you see? Well, first of all, people were asking me at the end of last year in like my mailbags that I do on, on YouTube, mm-hmm. is Carlos Alcaraz injury prone? Because he has that physical style, there is the, the Nadal standard of, oh, there's no way you can play like that. You can't play like that, right, without getting hurt. And back then, I was just like, all right, pipe down. One injury, <laughs> yeah. all right? Like, can we calm yeah. down? Now, start of this year, there's been additional injuries, and we're getting to the point where I would never slap, like, an injury-prone label on Alcaraz at this stage, but we're getting to the point where where it's been an issue for him, at least in the last six months. There's no doubt about that, and there's been multiple things Um, With that said, it's hard for me to hit the panic button or really have a good read on what this Alcaraz injury is because it would have made sense for him to pull the ripcord on Acapulco regardless. After not playing since the Paris Masters, so that's about three months out of the game, and then you go back-to-back weeks, I believe Mm -hmm. it's nine matches in 12 days with the travel day, back-to-back finals, Buenos Aires and Rio. Oh, now you're going to play Acapulco? That almost doesn't seem like a good idea. So the fact that he pulls out, I have a hamstring, and then yes, he pulls out of the Vegas exhibition. Might have been a little bit shady to pull out of Acapulco and even play in Vegas. Look, I'll say this. If the injury was even minor, he was going to pull out of Acapulco. And as a result, it's hard for me to be really, really worried about the hamstring. However, yeah, maybe it could be a big issue.
1: So the end of that match was so bizarre with Nori because he wasn't moving. But uh, that just shows you how good he is. He could still play (laughs) at a close to top 10 level, maybe basically immobile. I still think it's going to take a Herculean or close to an effort to beat him, an elite, elite level to beat him. If you look at who he has lost to in a lot of these tournaments, they are top players. That's why you look at Indian Wells and I don't... You know, he could get, what, Felix in the quarterfinals? Maybe Tommy Paul, he's around
0: there as well. That's who I have him playing, Tommy Paul. Tommy Paul. Uh, Hercotch has been excellent at Indian Wells. That's another potential quarterfinal.
1: Paul beat him last year, and Paul's got the wheels to keep up with him, Mm -hmm. to neutralize some of that power. So that's a fun section. Uh, Also in this tournament, though, we should give props to defending champ Taylor Fritz. Won his home tournament last year, broke into the top five. Quite the accomplishment. Do you think, and his his recent results have been good to not great, has had some tough losses in there. We know how tough he is mentally and, and physically strong there, but is there any chance the pressure could be getting to him a little bit that it's starting to seep in that now he's got these expectations
0: on him? I'd give you a resounding no, but you mentioned the tough losses, U.S. Open, Holt in the first round. And in that situation, you could have said, oh, was it weird to play a buddy? Uh, but then at the Australian Open, Popperin. Popperin's got big weapons. You have the Australian crowd. But all in all, those are two surprising losses at the biggest hardcore events he's played since winning Indian Wells. So that that's an area where it's like, oh, okay, uh, not what you want to see yeah. uh, for Taylor Fritz. And I'm, I'm sure those losses you know stung a lot for him. And th- well, he was brutally honest about them, right? It's like,
1: yeah, you know, too much is given, much is expected, right? Like yeah. top five player. You handle that popper like you win that match, yeah. you know. And if that's if that's the standard we're going to judge this guy on, top five guy, then that's not a good loss. I still think what Fritz can do on a tennis court, the weapons we always talk about weapons, like you need, he has them. Like mm-hmm. there's no doubting that. I look at this draw though. I mean, Ben Shelton round two would be yeah. pretty tasty.
0: Yeah, that's a popcorn <laughs> match. Uh, can I? I I'm going to give you my favorite Taylor Fritz stat. I was digging into okay. the numbers because. Indian Wells and Fritz, it's the kind of thing where I don't think it's any coincidence that he won the title there and it was the biggest title of his career. Like he's just better there. Yeah. And it's not just Some the last two before, years. Yeah, yeah. You can even you can go back even further to when he when he was a wild card. Uh he beat the number six seed and I actually forget who it was. It might have been might have been uh, I I don't remember, but he he pulled off a big upset early in his career. Here's the stat. As the lower ranked player at Indian Wells, Taylor Fritz is 10 and five. Mm. Mm. That's pretty, that's pretty juicy, right? Over overall 16 and six, but that tells you that Fritz, according to the the ranking system, which all in all does a pretty decent job of predicting success. Fritz is winning as an upset. Yeah. Fritz is a pretty safe
1: choice to do, to do some good things. I mean, Ben Shelton is going to be a tasty matchup, but you know, he's got another opportunity. I think, I think my answer to my own question would be he, he'll feel the pressure, but maybe not here. Like other events, other places as the top seed, but this is where he'll be fine.
0: It, it's, it's special for him. And by the way, he beat Chilich in 2017. Chilich was world number seven. Fritz was 136 at the time. Uh, and then the next year, 2018, Fritz is 74 in the world, and he makes the fourth round. He beats Rublev, Opelka, Verdasco. So it, it's just year after year, the guy overperforms yeah. and I, I say that in in a good way at indian wells it just it makes him better
1: let me ask you this because this has been a breakthrough tournament for a lot of different players on the men's side who could you see that we have a name that could have a breakthrough great question semi-final champion i got some names here i didn't want to lead you
0: so i have two names okay the first one is yuri Lahetchka. didn't have that one but i love it that's good <laughs> He's got really, really big power. I mean, he hits as big as anyone, uh, mostly the forehand because, you know, that's how it is. But even the two-handed backhand yeah. relative to other two-handed backhands is very, very right. big. Uh, other than that, he's, you know, very level-headed on the court, uh, fairly consistent. Mm-hmm. Think, think Burdich, and, and he's yeah, Czech. Yeah. He's Czech, and I don't like to do that to players. I don't like <laughs> to just compare them because they're from the same yeah. country, but he's very yeah. similar to Burdich, and I believe he uh, grew up training at the same academy as Tomas Burdich, so it does make a bit of sense. My other name is out of right field or oh. left. I don't know, whichever one. You can use either. All right. Yeah. Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. <laughs> wow, yeah. Wasn't expecting that. I know.
1: I'm, I'm going for the deeper cuts than... So, other than... I guess Dubai being like his just nightmare scenario because like David Ishvakin, every time he plays in Dubai, has match points on great players and just can't finish it off. I actually respect that one because there's been that false assumption that he's a clay court guy, but he actually does pretty well on hardcore. And that's the, the pains of tennis, right? The draws have been brutal to him. Like, mm-hmm. he is, he's hasn't had the opportunity, but this could be one where it opens up. What is it about his game that you think suits him well here?
0: Well, it's slow. Uh, so, yeah. Indian Wells, it's it's the yeah. kind of hardcore where, with the exception of movement and... It's that know, Rafa effect where, like, he'll do better here than he will at Miami. Correct, yeah. correct. So, I'm absolutely thinking about that. With, with Fakina, the weakness of his game technically is his serve. Now, mm-hmm. the weakness of his game is not technical, it's mental, yeah. but uh technically it's his serve which means he needs he just needs a slow surface so he can break serve a lot and get into plenty of return games but uh to me if you ask me who who's the guy with the highest upside outside of the top 15 maybe top 20 it's him Uh, i don't hesitate it's him with the speed and power uh that he possesses on the court i think he's a top five mover in tennis i'm just kind of waiting for his breakthrough and I feel like he's worked really hard on the mental side. I know the Rublev thing is not a great example of that. He took yeah. a set off Medvedev. Maybe I'll be completely wrong, but okay. I feel like he's been knocking on the door against top guys in conditions that don't suit him. And here at Indian Wells, after heartbreak in Dubai, I just almost feel like he, he can come here and, and break through. I'm waiting for it for, for him.
1: On the other side of the draw, what would you say would stop us from Medvedev sits a past semifinal? What player? Well, what in the other, in in the individual players, I named win their games. What prevents us from seeing that? So that rivalry.
0: Yeah, what prevents us from seeing that would be Titi Pas's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I if if it's healthy, I have Titi Pass doing great at this tournament, even though the history isn't great. What prevents Medvedev from doing from from reaching the semifinal is the surface, which should not suit him. No. And I, I don't think it's a great assumption. Now, it could happen, but I don't think it's a great assumption to think Medvedev is going to go to the grittiest, slowest hard court in the world, go from Dunlop Australian Open balls, which he's been playing with for two months, to pen tennis balls, and fly across the world. Right. And it's going to look exactly the same. Uh, I don't think it's a great assumption.
1: It, I mean, if he wins this tournament, then we really have to just... Level him up. Level. I mean, yeah. there's not many more levels to go, but he'd be getting closer and closer. Right, and and the the injury thing with Tsitsipas is a good point because we really don't know what's going on there, but we've also known in his past, he's done this before, right, where he's come in maybe a little banged up, maybe a little hurt, and then he looks fresh as day, and he's yeah. flying around the court out there.
0: Yeah, and these conditions should suit him. Plenty of time on the return of serve, plenty of time to create forehands. I, I love these conditions for him. Now, it hasn't played out for some reason. He yeah. hasn't played well here. Uh, he made a quarterfinal once, that's it. Medvedev has never even made a quarterfinal. Yeah. Um, I think for Medvedev, the thing to watch out stylistically, by the way, is a speedy opponent because uh, yeah. that's where he could have trouble finishing points and that can uh, frustrate him. So I would look at uh, potentially Nishioka, potentially if my if my dark horse comes through, Davidovich Fikina. Okay. Uh, but it could be hatchinov If it's hatchinov I think that would be the ideal quarterfinal.
1: That guy's tough. I mean, I know he's tough. Yeah. I know he's
0: tough, but he's not the style of opponent that i think would would most concern medvedev in fact he doesn't come forward like the guys who bother medvedev and he doesn't run like the guys who i know she didn't say cast for root in there yeah mitch uh it hasn't been good it's
1: been yeah we're we're on the verge of needing the discussion one more result and i think we're gonna have to have that talk about what's gonna what's going on and when where this is gonna go and
0: he did just take a break okay he did not play in February. He was not grinding at the Golden Swing, which he did last year, which I actually criticized him for doing last mm-hmm. year. I said, look, we don't. you don't need to be winning no. Clay 250s. Like no. We know you can do that. Yeah. Go to Rotterdam and work on those aspects yeah. of your game against the best in the world.
1: All right, more with Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Insight. I want to finish this up with some talk on the women's draw. And it was about this time last year where we convened and talked to Igas Viantek. And Indian mm-hmm. Wells was not the start of her run, but the start of her big time run. It was when she really got going, won this tournament, won Miami, went to the clay, won every event she played there. She comes back to this tournament confident. While all the results haven't been there, her confidence hasn't wavered. And she comes into this tournament as the top seed and a pretty standard bet in a lot of cases. And I'll let you poke holes in this if you want, but she's been pretty consistent at at the very least, getting deep into tournaments—it's it's that big three. It's that big three uh, level of consistency. So, do you think there's any doubt that she doesn't at least win a few matches and get to the the later stages?
0: I don't have any doubt personally. I, I think the conditions are are really nice for her as well. Everything I look for at yeah. Indian Wells, I'm looking for heavy forehands, uh, damage from the back of the court. I'm looking for speed. Yeah. Uh, the serve, I don't think, hurts her as much. At at Indian Wells, she's going to be able to, first of all, defend when she gets, when her serve gets attacked, she's going to be able to defend better. And, you know, that's how we've seen players like Rebakin at the Australian Open or even Pagula at the United Cup uh, hurt Iga is to rush her on that first ball. Uh, Plus, on her own return of serve, uh, it's unlikely that a player like, I don't know, Sabalenka is uh, is going to be able to, or Rebokina for that matter, uh, is going to be able to really get tons of purchase out of out of their serve against Iga, which is another kind of path to victory against her. So I like the conditions. Uh, you know, uh, it'll be interesting with the Kray of a thing now. Barbora is the only player who can yeah. beat her in finals. Yeah. So that happened again. I don't I- know how much illness. Well, and, and
1: yeah, and I, I we heard the same stuff that she may have been sick, and, and I love the fact that she didn't use it as an excuse to yeah. bring up anything. It is funny with Krachikova because she is the only player that plays the way she does maybe on tour, but it seems like there's this, like, template of if you have a chance that he gets the big girls with the big serves and mm-hmm. big weapons, and Barbara's not like that. It's just her uniqueness yeah. makes her difficult, which is why in this draw. Andreescu, round two, former champion. It doesn't really threaten me too much with Iga. It would be the big hitters, like if Hadid and Maya gets there, if it's somebody like Sam Sanova down the stretch. Rabakina or Stabilinka in a final. But, yeah, this how the conditions play, Iga's weapons, her confidence, her being healthy, no worries until we get into quarterfinal, semifinal land.
0: Yeah, and, you know, terrific, terrific draw, I think. I mean, yeah, I know BB is there, and that's a, a dangerous name, certainly. Uh, but I think Garcia, as the five seed, opposite ends in, in these conditions, probably a good thing. I,
1: I have something that I wanted to ask you in terms of Garcia and then even Sabalenka. Like, you have your career year, your career milestone. And I don't know that I, I have my doubts about how you follow that up. The women's game is known to be a graveyard in that immediate aftermath of accomplishments. Iga's so rare. And yeah. Garcia felt the pressure at Lyon losing that final. Uh, and then we also have the fact that Sablanka. I mean, Barb. She had match points and against Krushkova, couldn't win that one. We'll see. I mean, there is there is that thought process that the letdown is coming or might already be here.
0: Caroline has looked stressed all year. Yeah, and when there's stress in her game, very hard to execute. I mean, the the offensive nature, the attacking nature of it you have to yeah. bring confidence with that play style, uh, less so than someone who might be able to rely on their legs and right. play it a bit safer. Uh, Garcia can't do that. So uh, with Garcia, yeah, I think there's that concern, especially because last time she got to world number four, it was uh, it was very difficult for her. Now she's more mature. Uh, she has that experience. You would hope she would handle it better, uh, but she's looked stressed thus far. Sabalenka, I'm not too worried about. I actually think her ability... Is so terrific yeah. that I don't see anything stopping her. I think she she has she has too much going for her. So
1: the loss is just it happens like close matches just couldn't. I mean, I because I, I I see that side of it too. The loss in, in Dubai where you have the match points and you just can't get it done. Yeah, happens. Although if you want a live upset pick, if it's Vekic Sablanka, I know they Sablanka beat her at Australia, but the head to heads in Vekic's It's yeah. early. If you're going to trip up Sablanka, I do. I put her in that category of players that might be more prone to an upset early, as as opposed to finding your confidence and doing well later. And and just one other note on that regard, Rebakina as a ten seed just seems criminally under <laughs> and very
0: because she'd probably be what your third or fourth pick to win the tournament, roughly. Yeah, I, I'm very interested to see because I'm not sure that we've gotten this answer on Rebakina What does her surface versatility look like? Does she need the court speed to reward her serve? Now, I'm just pulling up her splits live, and let's see what this looks like. On hard court, her win percentage is, uh, oh, wow, is 63%. On clay, it's better. She's huh. 31 and 16 on clay, yeah. so a better win percentage early in her career. Uh, that's something to monitor. That's interesting. For for some players, the big power there's is tri- actually very helpful there's on the your, slow surfaces. Yeah,
1: there's your trivia quote. Who's the last was she's the last player to beat Serena, right? At the French Open. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, her game, I mean, in Australia was like the eye opening thing. It's like, okay, you think I'm just the fluke champion at Wimble, then watch this and how she did it and who she went through was pretty impressive. Yeah. I there's something about a player that doesn't need to be surface dependent, like you said, like that could really just maybe be that all surface type player. You also have the questions in this draw of what levels, just like the men's side, like what level are we going to see Hans at coming off of an injury? Uh, you know, and then I guess the mental side would be Maria Sakkari, last year's finalist, which I couldn't believe, by the way, one t- one title just kind of makes you scratch your head, right? She's got one title in her career. Yeah, it's, the,
0: it's, a, it's a big <laughs> understatement yeah. there. It definitely yeah. makes you yeah. scratch your head. Uh, it's been finishing tournaments. She has a terrific record in quarterfinals. She has a, and she gets to a lot of quarterfinals. Yes. She has a very, very, very poor record in semifinals. And she's one in four in her career in finals. Confidence
1: is key for her, which you could say for a lot of players. But I hope Anjabur is at a high level. Mention her, but, you know, we don't know. I mean, that was another thing. last. She's played so much tennis to get to that point. And unfortunately, you say you could see the body breaking down in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, you you can. I I would I guess temper expectations for her next couple of events. Um, it was it was sad to see her miss the Middle Eastern swing also, mm-hmm. uh, because obviously she in that part of the world has done so much to grow the game. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully we see her back at full power. And then I think the other contender to to bring into the mix here would be Coco.
1: So I was going to ask you this. It's kind of the bow on it. Is that your American that you feel the most confident in going deep into this tournament, or you could go out of left slash right, left center field?
0: Conditions wise, yeah, yeah. Pagula has really earned tons of respect. It's like, what more does she have yeah. to do other than win a major? <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. earned tons of respect. But if I'm looking, if I'm comparing Goff and Pagula, and you know, I, I evaluate them in in general pretty equally at this time. Uh, with with these conditions, Coco is going to be very. Very hard to hit through. So there,
1: and you would be a good person to ask this question because we talk about, like, women's tennis and winning majors and all this stuff. Doesn't it just seem unfair that I'd say Coco and Pagula, like, maybe their best chance to win a major best surface would be on the clay? But, oh, by the way, that's Iga's best surface, so... Mm -hmm. Because and I, and I look at Coco from the perspective of I love so much of what she does. And she's so consistent and solid and professional. But she gets into these big matchups with Iga and other players. And they just break down her forehand and they break her down. And it's, I mean, what she's done is to be lauded. But that last level is proving to be very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, it's a strange situation with her because you're right. She's so far ahead of schedule. So far but it's like one thing when one thing is really the roadblock and for her it is her forehand and
1: only I, the best players can stop her even with
0: that yeah cuz you got to you got to get there quickly you yeah. got to bring pace and quality yeah. to that side yeah. if you're going to you know if you're going to hit lollipops over there she's going to be able to handle it just fine and by the way if we're you know bringing this to kind of Indian Wells Uh, She she'll have the requisite time on the forehand and it'll reward her heavy topspin on that side, which is another reason why I I do think the conditions are quite nice for her here. I will say though, the off season for Coco wasn't quite what I wanted to see. I was hoping that we'd see some, some real visible changes on the forehand side. And it just, it looks pretty much the same and she can still be a great player with that forehand. She she's proven that. But I would like to see some some bravery and some boldness, like we saw with Sabalenka. Sabalenka being like, "I'm in the garage here." Now uh, I know it got really bad for her, yeah. arguably worse than it has ever been for Coco. But I'm going to hire, you know, a biomechanics guru, uh, McMillan. Mac- uh, I forget. I'm forgetting the first name. I am going to fire my psychologist and completely rethink the way yeah. I'm doing the mental game. I'd like to see a little bit of that from Coco.
1: It's tough to do when you're so far ahead of schedule, as we said, still a teenager and into the top five. So it's like,
0: you know, but I I agree. I
1: think there's some tactical changes and some big adjustments she can make. But still, the results are there. And I agree with you of all the Americans, Jesse included. I know it sounds like we're putting her down a little bit. But Coco on this in this condition on this surface seems most destined. Well, Gil, this has been fun. I'll, I'll just wrap with this. Uh, any other women's dark horses in the mix? Any other outside the field that you think could make a move and maybe
0: you know hoist that trophy? Mm, trophy? We're talking, we're talking big time here. I think Astapenko is one to watch here. Always I, is. <laughs> she's she's always one to watch. I'm excited to see what Chikova does. Yeah. To to follow up what was a a run that was as impressive as any ever and that's not hyperbole right. with, with the players that she was able to get through. We've seen her have a lot of success on the slower surfaces and, you know, getting to, yeah. peaking at number two, having the injury, taking a long time to really get back to form after the yeah. injury. Uh, I'm still not clear on if Chikova is, oh, you're going to contend for every big title now, or if she's a little bit below that level. Yeah. I, I feel like she can be. She can be there. And I'm excited to see what she does as well.
1: I'm always monitoring. I know she's a higher seed, but Belinda Bencic, I think she could be a threat.
0: Tough for her. Tough this for is not good for her. No, she, She's changing. I agree. She's someone to watch in 2023. She's changed yeah. the way she goes about it, about it a little bit, where I think she's trying to hit her forehand more traditionally yeah. to actually get some rotation, some topspin on it, and be able to hit it cross-court. Uh, Dmitry Tersenov is is really changing things. Yeah. Th- that's another player. He gets everybody, he gets
1: everybody better. It's yeah. my, my <laughs> reason for backing her more than anything.
0: And I think what he does is like, oh, uh, you're hiring me as the coach? Uh, I don't care what you've done in your career. We're going to make some changes. Also
1: understands why it, Explains why it may not work out with other players that may have thought about bringing him on. Pretty obvious. Totally. (laughs) Who I'm thinking of there. Yeah. But no, I maybe not to win this one. You're right, but just to kind of because I've always thought even before Tursunov, she has something like she has that fight tenacity Mm. that is a rare fight air thing. So
0: and talent. Yeah. You know, she plays completely differently from anybody else. I don't think there's anybody with better timing and redirection skills. She just needs that. All right, like you have the you have that I'm going to absorb pace and redirect down the line thing going. Now you need to just be able to generate your own. And, and that's kind of the, the piece that I think Tersenov is, is going for.
1: Well, I can't wait. Gil, this has been a blast. We'll catch you, you know, all on our tennis airwaves, podcasts, broadcast, second serve show. Uh, Appreciate you coming on and uh, you know, enjoy. uh, and, And now you're an LA resident, you know, you're, a local too. So we got to get your advice on all the LA eatery and stuff because I know you're a food guy.
0: Yeah, we can do a 30 minute podcast on that anytime. Uh, great to be on with you as always.
1: Appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Gil Gross and thanks to Andrea Pekovic for appearing as guests. A reminder, you can catch the entire episode and our entire catalog of episodes on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It's very simple. Just go to tennis.com slash podcast. You'll find this show. You'll find the entire outstanding collection of shows on our network. And you can find us streaming on all your podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, to name a few. Next week, we're back. we got more to talk about. Indian Wells will be in motion. We'll be breaking down all the results, the action. Looking forward to championship weekend. There's a lot to like in the tennis world, and you can find it on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thanks again to Andrea Pekovic. Thanks again to Go Gross. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside It. In. We'll see you next week.